Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. This is episode number two. I'm your host, James Vermillion, owner of Vermillion Private Wealth, a fee-only investment management and financial planning firm. And we've got a great show today. We've got a really good bourbon, and we have a really incredible guest coming on, someone who I've been following for a little while now, and I'm excited to have him join me on this show, Mr. Rob Koifman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Koifin, and it's a tool that provides analytics and research capabilities um, and helps investors follow market trends. And that tool is really helping independent advisors like myself, and it's helping individual investors access really advanced tools that for a long time were only available at very steep prices to firms with deep pockets. And one of the reasons I was able to start my own firm and go out on my own and really build a, a firm that was fitting with my vision of how I want to work with my clients and how I want to manage portfolios is because I was able to go out and curate a suite of tools that works with how I think and how how I do those things. Nothing like that existed not too long ago without spending thousands of dollars a month. So I'm really excited that people like Rob are changing the industry, making it more accessible and providing modern tools that allow me to do my job better. So Rob, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, James, for having me on. Excited to be on here. Yeah. So before we get into the investing stuff, the meat of the conversation, this is Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. Um, I don't like drinking alone. Uh, we're going to be drinking something really good today, something that I'm uh, very passionate about, a brand that I love. It's very uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, so I like to get my guests good and liquored up so they tell the truth when they're talking. So I hope you'll join me and uh, we'll do some sipping on, like I said, a very special brand. So are you a bourbon guy, first off? Uh, n- not, not traditionally. I have nothing against bourbon, but that's not my drink of choice. And and you're from New York. Uh, I grew up in New York. Yes. I'm originally, okay. originally born in Ukraine, but I grew up in New York. Okay. Well, very cool. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. I worked on the international business side. We were talking just before we, we started recording here. Um, bourbon has become so huge, not just here in, in Kentucky, in the South, not just in the United States. It's really huge everywhere. It's really blown up. So it's really kind of an exciting time to be a bourbon fanatic um, because people all over the place are are really loving it. But the brand we're drinking today, it was created in 1984. And it really, I'd say, started or helped really propel this super premium um, bourbon experience that people are really craving today. Because at the time, back in the 80s, bourbon was kind of your grandfather's drink, Mm -hmm. you know, so this brand, we're going to be drinking Blanton's, which uh, is the original single barrel bourbon. And to me, that that's kind of an important piece of their story. I'm a sucker for stories. So I'd love to get more of your story about coming uh, to the United States from the Ukraine at some <laughs> point. But it was a really good story. Back in 1984, Elmer T. Lee, one of the best master distillers in U.S. history, 
decided to bring this concept of a single barrel bourbon to the mainstream. And he did that because back in, I think it was the early or mid forties, he was working for Colonel Albert Blanton, uh, the namesake of the bourbon. And he remembered when he was hosting these big, elegant, extravagant parties and bringing dignitaries um, onto the property and the premise, he went to a specific warehouse, to a specific section, and he found these uh, honey barrels, these really delicious bourbons. And he would just basically crack a barrel open and serve straight from the barrel. Mm-hmm. So Elmer T. Lee in the 80s said, hey, you know, let's try something different. I remember when I was a much younger uh, gentleman, you know, seeing Colonel Blanton do this. I think this could work for an actual commercial product. So he did that and it went really poorly (laughs) at the beginning. It just did not catch on. People weren't spending as much um, on booze back then, especially bourbon. Um, When people were buying high-end whiskey, they were really looking for scotches Mm -hmm. um, and things like that. But um, they stuck with it. It's an excellent bourbon. And, you know, every bottle, every barrel is a little bit different. So instead of blending and trying to get this exact taste profile for every bottle, you're going to have some some nuance and some variance um, for every bottle. So let's um, why don't we do this? Let's take a little sip. And I'd love to get your kind of initial thoughts, especially since you're not maybe an everyday bourbon drinker. Hmm. Has some heat. Definitely has some yeah. heat. Um it's uh, it, it's complex. It's like a complex taste um, because it, it, it's sort of like um, it's it sort of kind of like builds, uh, but doesn't overpower. Um, now I'm like hearing to myself say that and it sounds uh, pretty uh, it, it's it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice to sip. Are you are you drinking it on the rocks or straight up? I'm just drinking it neat here. So I've got it in a in a Glencairn glass. Um, if we're being honest, I've had more Blantons than probably anyone should have ever had. Which is a good thing. Do you, do you have like a lifetime uh, supply given that you work there or do you still have to purchase it? You know, no, unfortunately I don't. Every once in a while I might be able to coerce my way uh, into a bottle. But uh, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, the brand is, is so popular that it's really tough to find. So that's a good thing and a bad thing because I, even I usually uh, have a tough time getting getting my hands on a bottle these days. But uh, I thought your description was uh, rather eloquent um, for a non-bourbon drinker. You must be a wine guy or something. Uh, you know, I love uh, tequila and mezcal. <laughs> okay. Probably, probably the opposite of wine. Um, and uh, my wife and I love this uh, wine that we found at Trader Joe's. Uh, called Moon, which uh, costs seven dollars a bottle, and is like one of the best wines I've ever had for for the price point. So we drink that wine, um, and I love Moscow and tequila. Um, and uh, maybe after today, I'm going to be uh, a little bit more of a Blanton's fan and, and try and find that as well. Yeah, I hope so. First off, finding a good bottle of whatever you like at a good price is—I mean, that's the ultimate goal, I think. Um, especially here in Kentucky, there's a big it kind of becomes a competition who's got the the most expensive bottle and Mm. who's collecting the best stuff. I am so far off of that train. Mm. That train is, is, is out of sight for me. I just like a good bourbon that I can enjoy and that I can find. So, but Blanton's is a really good one. So we'll continue to sip on this and move on a little bit, but we'll come back to it. And I hate to do this to you. Actually, I don't, I really don't. I'm really going to (laughs) enjoy it. I think, but 
it's been a really wild last week and a half or so. And I've had more calls in the last probably week and a half or two than I've had in a long time on any particular financial news item. And it was all related to the GameStop AMC event fiasco. I don't know. What do you, what do you want to call it here? I don't know. I don't know what to call it. Short squeeze. We can, you know, I don't know. Fiasco is a great word for it. I think so too. So what, I mean, what do you think, what do you think about all that? I mean, obviously we, it was a huge short squeeze. There was the whole background of the Reddit group that kind of helped propel it. There's hedge funds involved. I know Melvin Capital and maybe some others had to actually get an infusion of cash uh, because they were so heavily shorting the stock. It was just really a, a bizarre, it was very 2020 and I thought we were in 2021. So I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah. So, so one thing is it looks like 2021 is going to be crazier than 2020. So I think uh, l- let's get that straight. Um, I think there's so many different dimensions to, to GameStop. Um, I don't know if it makes sense kind of for your viewers to go over kind of like what is shorting or, or why, why does shorting uh, potentially create a short squeeze? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, Rob, I think I've had a lot of these questions. I actually wrote a blog post that I was attempting to put into layman's terms, some of the internal, I call it plumbing of mm-hmm. Wall Street. But yeah, feel free to uh, kind of exp- uh, try to explain that kind of what that is, what shorting is and how that played a role. Yeah. So, so just real briefly, um, shorting is a Wall Street invention. Um, it was invented so that participants on Wall Street can take a negative view on the stock. Um, it's, it's very easy to take a positive view on a stock. You buy the stock. Uh, but then uh, at some point, and this was over 100 years ago, um, people have been shorting for a very long time. But at some point, somebody said, hey, what if I go to my broker and I borrow 100 shares of stock and then I sell those 100 shares and then later on, I could buy back those shares and return the shares to my broker so that you're kind of borrowing the shares, you're selling in the marketplace, and then later on, you're buying back those shares. And if the price drops from the beginning to the end of the transaction, you make money because you're selling it at one price, you're buying it back later, and you're delivering the actual number of shares. Um, uh, and, and obviously, you, you make that spread. So that's the that's the kind of like basics of shorting. Shorting happens all the time. Um, there's it's, it's a very uh, liquid market. There's, there's there's not a lot of drama in it typically. Um, when the, there is drama is when there's a lot of short interest, meaning a lot of investors start shorting a stock. And um, one thing to note about GameStop is there's a really good reason that it has high short interest. Uh, and, there, <laughs> the, the, and the really good reason is a lot of investors thought it was going to be blockbuster. A lot of investors right. thought it's going gonna, it's gonna to go out of business. Um, and basically, GameStop has three businesses. Number one is it sells consoles like PlayStation, Xbox. Number two is it sells video games, new video games. And number three is it sells used video games so that when its customers come in, they they sell the, the video games to GameStop and then GameStop resells them. The last two businesses, the video, the new video games and the used video games, are the highest margin businesses. The uh, new video games are 20-something percent and the used one is like 50%. Now, video games are all moving to digital, right? You can now download mm-hmm. video games through your PlayStation, whatever it is. So you could imagine that a business that's built on, on video games isn't going to be doing so well. And that's exactly what's happened over the past 5, 10 years as the stock went from, from uh, uh, $50 to, to $5. Um, and a lot of investors thought that it's going to go out of business. Mm-hmm. Now, 
The reason that short interest can get so high and can be over 100% is when an investor does a short sale. So let's say I'm an investor and I short uh, 10,000 shares. I go out into the market, I borrow those shares, I go out into the market and I sell those shares. I sell those shares to somebody, to another buyer, who then deposits those shares at their broker. And those shares can be sold again or sold short again, meaning they could be lent out and sold short. So that's why short interest can be very high and can be over 100%. Um, the analogy is sort of like fractional banking, where there's more money in circulation than there is a deposit at a bank because there's, a, there's only a fraction of the money at a bank. And then that money gets lent out and spent and deposited at a bank and lent out and spent and stuff like that. Um, and high short interest isn't necessarily a bad thing or doesn't cause the stock price to go up. It only matters when the stock price does start going up and all the people that are short now have a paper loss, which they then have to cover or they have to uh, 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 reduce their position. And the way they do that is they go out into the market and buy more shares, which causes more pressure on the stock price. Right. Uh, and, and so that's exactly what happened with GameStop and that short interest got very high. It was over 100%. Um, the stock started going up for actually fundamental reasons because um, they're, uh, they shifted their strategy more to digital sales. They, they hired a new executive that um, uh, was previously at Chewy and, and mm -hmm. had a vision to transform the company into more of a digital first company. And so the stock price started rising from 5 to 10 to 15 to 20. And then some people on Reddit also kind of said, hey, by the way, this shortage is just a super high. If the stock price keeps rising, all these hedge funds are going to have to cover and they're going to suffer losses. And if we, Reddit, Wall Street Bets, band together and buy more shares and don't let our brokers lend out those shares, that's going to cause an even more upward pressure on the stock price. Uh, and so that's exactly what happened. And I think uh, because everyone knows the brand, like people sort of know GameStop because they always pass it in the mall, um, because it was sort of like, hey, it's Wall Street Bets versus hedge funds which was kind of like the David and Goliath matchup um, because the stock price started going from five to 20 to 500. Um, and you had people like Dave Portnoy jump on the bandwagon and, and, <laughs> right. and, and Ja Rule. Uh, I think it just became a really interesting story to tell. And, and, and so a lot of people picked it up. Yeah, no, I think that was a great summary. And I've had a lot of the same, like one of the questions, even people who are fairly well-versed on investing, one of the common questions I had was, how could the short or how, how could it be over 100% of the float? So I think that was a really good kind of explanation of, of shorting in general and what happened with GameStop. And, you know, what was interesting to me, it became in the media this um, kind of retail, um, independent at home, everyday investor versus hedge funds. And then, of course, you had Robinhood was the one that got attacked in the media Although it was many brokerages that that started limiting the and you know there are liquidity issues there are reserves requirements they were all trying to meet they none of them handled it very well in my opinion um, so it was really a, a nightmare as far as PR but you know one thing I saw about this and this this gives you an idea of the how where Robinhood was with this they raised in the last week and a half three point four billion dollars which is more than their previous eight years of existence combined so clearly although this was one stock or it was really a handful of stocks but gamestop was was really the biggest one uh biggest mover and it shows you it, it, it became a huge media story it's um 
percolating in, in the government with certain officials wanting to investigate kind of the inner workings. And it really became a David and Goliath tale. And I think there's some truth to that. I'm not sure that the the Reddit crowd was necessarily representing the everyday retail investor. I mean, they're doing it to make money too. They're not, they weren't doing it to make a, a uh, some uh, point about society at large, uh, but it was certainly entertaining. It certainly um, brought investing into the limelight in a lot of ways. If you, I mean, I don't know that I would call that investing, but I mean, it bought, it brought stocks and in, in investing and buying and selling into the media. And I always think that's a good thing because even if it's for a bad reason, the more people that know about investing and have access to investing, I think that's a good thing. I, I, I couldn't agree more. So I think uh, what Robinhood has done in terms of allowing um, everyday people to just set up an account uh, to become much more approachable about investing, I think that's great. I think um, you know everyone started off not knowing anything about the market, including me and including you. And mm-hmm. I remember I remember having the the questions, which now seem trivial to me after being in the market for more than twenty years, but like. You know, like uh, how, you know, how do you value a stock, or what is a valuation, or you know, how do you look at a financial, or wh- what does it mean when you buy a stock? Like, where does the money go, and all that other stuff. And the way you learn is by doing it, and by that's right. like by by the way you learn is by losing money, and that's how I learned. Uh, and I've had a lot of lessons in that. And so, I think to the extent that Robinhood is offering that service, I think it's great. You know, I I, I do think that they could do a better job of of providing higher caliber education to their users. Um, and, instead of just providing kind of like clickbait and SEO optimized content on their website. But in general, uh, totally agree with you that I think it's great that so many people are now in the stock market um, and investing in companies. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, I think there are some issues with gamifying trading. Mm-hmm. But like you said, I mean, if more people are interested and more people are learning, then it's a net gain, I think, for the long term. Now, like, you know, You've had losses. I know I've had losses. I started trading um, really when I was in college. And I can tell you this, I don't trade today or manage money or uh, my client's money the same way I was uh, back when I was 22, 21. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. And you learn those lessons. And as you age, you know, you learn, you kind of start to see things in a different light um, as you go through life. And um Knowing these things is better than not knowing them, in my opinion. And I think anytime you can democratize finance and more people can benefit from what exists, then that's better for our society at large if more pe- people can participate. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the whole thing with gamifying um, is I, I definitely see um, I definitely see the, the argument that, like, look, this is serious money and you shouldn't kind of make it a, a game. On the other hand... Um, it really is a game, uh, you know, like, it's like true. Invest, <laughs> investing is a game and, and it's a game against everyone else in the market. Um, and it's a game because there's a score. There's a score that that is that is very objective. And that's what makes the game really fun. And um, I know kind of like officially from regulators, uh, you know, investing is not a casino and it's not a game. But I could tell you from from having wor- worked on Wall Street, a lot of professional investors, uh, a lot of professional traders think it's a casino or uh, or tr- trade investing like, like um, um, you know, sometimes uh, with with emotional, ex- too much emotional buy-in um, and do some of the kind of compulsory stuff that a gambler would do. So um, there, there's definitely a gray, gray line. And I don't think Robinhood is the one that's making the stock market a game. I think they're taking advantage of the fact that it is a game. 
Totally agree. And when you think about it, you're right. It really is a kind of a paramutual system. We're all betting on certain outcomes, right? Yep. I mean, realistically. So I don't know. It's all interesting. I'm happy anytime people start calling me, asking me what's going on, because that's more people that might start investing. And I think that's good for, for everybody. So we'll move on. Thanks for your insight, especially on the shorting. That's not always the easiest thing to explain because it's just not something a lot of people have heard about. They know you can buy a stock. They know you can sell the stock. They don't necessarily know you can go short um, a position. So um, interesting stuff. The other news topic I wanted to touch on a little bit um, and just get your thoughts on was Amazon recently released their uh, Q4 2020 earnings. And my goodness, I mean, what a behemoth, first off. Um, their sales topped $100 billion <laughs> for the first time ever. In 2020, their net sales jumped 38%. And I mean, you think about how big Amazon was in 2019 to, to grow your net sales uh, you know, almost 40% is absolutely incredible. But the big news, that wasn't the big news out of the out of Amazon's uh, press release and uh, their earnings call. The big news was that founder Jeff Bezos is uh, going to take a back seat in Q3 and transition to being the chairman of the board, but not the CEO. And I know I personally, and you know this as a, a person who is building a company, no one cares more about your company than you do. And I really like founder-led companies. It's not a requirement. I don't only invest in founder-led companies, of course. But to me, that's a little uh, check mark that might uh, have a little sway. What do you think about Bezos stepping down and uh, just Amazon in general? Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So look, I think I think Amazon is, is one of the most special companies Um that has ever existed. Um, I think, you know, Bezos has done a really good job of articulating his philosophy in his investor letters um, and really saying like, look, I'm going to, uh, even though the stock is publicly traded, I'm going to take a private equity view of, of, of the, of the business and really think of it in, uh, in 10 year terms and 20 year terms uh, and not in, in quarterly terms. Um, and, you know, from my understanding, the, the culture there, is is very well defined, and they do a really um, good job of of making sure that that culture is represented by all the executives and employees and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I don't think this is going to derail um, the the stock. Uh, I, I don't think this is um, a case of like when Steve Jobs left Apple. Uh, obviously, not not on his own boat, but um, the kind of like creativity almost almost died, and, and Steve Jobs was really that company. I think this is a little bit different. I think Amazon is more of like an operational company, um, uh, and, and so I think it'll it'll conti- continue that momentum partly because what they've done a really good job is identifying the big trends in the big markets and just moving fast and moving early. Rather than doing anything that's like you know super special, or you know if you, if you look at their if you look at you know everyone shops on Amazon, I think their their website is actually pretty poorly designed. I think it's like super cluttered and there's there's a lot of stuff going on. But the fact that it's so easy and they've and you sort of like know what to expect, and they started doing it uh, ten years before everyone else. They got a huge head start with the warehouses and the Prime membership, and and so they're they're the leader and, and they they're entrenched. Um, you know, same thing uh, with their cloud business. Uh, same thing with the media business. Now their advertising business is, is growing so rapidly. Um, so I think it's it's one of these blue chip names that are going to continue to grow with the internet. 
online uh, online sales are still pretty underpenetrated relative to the overall economy. Um, and so, as long as that continues, um, I think I think Amazon will be just fine. Man, you brought up a lot of good points that um, I'd kind of like to talk about. Uh, we'll start with you mentioned their sales compared to the kind of the broader retail space. I'm a macro guy. You know, I invest by trying to find seismic shifts in how we all live our lives and invest in companies that are going to benefit from that. You know, when you talk about retail, we're coming off of COVID, uh, hopefully soon, but um, that obviously provided a tailwind to an already massively growing space. But I don't think people realize how small e-commerce is compared to just retail in general. And I, I forget the numbers, but I think we're still under 20%. Yeah, I, I, I want to Google this to make sure that it's correct. But, you know, I remember uh, five years ago, I was at a hedge fund and we were uh, we were looking at Amazon. And I remember at that time, it was about 8%. And uh, online sales had been around then for 10 or 15 years. And the pushback was like, look, how much bigger can this get? Uh, and that trend has only accelerated. And so, um, I, you know, if I had to guess, it's probably around 12 or 14% right now uh, of overall sales. And, you know, uh, I think, I think that, that portion could get, could get very high. And I think it's, it's probably going to, at some point, uh, be at least half uh, when it's just going to be uh, – easier to buy stuff and it's everything's going to be delivered the same day because right now there's, st- there's still some friction that exists. So um, the big market to tackle for Amazon is, is groceries. That's really uh, something that they've known they have to figure out because um, that's such a big portion of, of the overall spending for, uh, for consumers. And, and they've obviously purchased whole foods and are thinking about that. Mm-hmm. But uh, on, on a macro basis, as you mentioned, there's still a lot, a long way to go. Yeah, I'm looking at this chart that Arc Invest put out, and keep in mind this is pre-COVID. This goes. This is 2019, so it looks like retail in the U.S. as a whole for 2019 was about five and a half trillion dollars was the total market share. Mm-hmm. And this chart, it's you know, it's it's zoomed out pretty far. It covers from 1929 to to 2019. It looks like in 2019 about. A tr- let's see, about a trillion and a half, maybe of that almost, you know, of that five and a half trillion. So, I mean, like you said, it's still a really uh, small chunk when you look at the whole economy. We, everyone, focuses on it because Amazon's a behemoth, and some Shopify has really kind of started to come into its own. You have Etsy out there, which is really niche and kind of the specialized gifts, handmade, small scale stuff. So. I'm with you. I don't think this e-commerce trend is going away anytime soon. I think probably in the next decade, we'll see closer to 50 to 50, 50, 50 um, split. I think COVID really took a trend that was well on its way and really just uh, provided some, some push behind it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I think um, the head of AWS is actually going to be taking over the CEO role uh, uh, Andy Jassy, I think is his name. Uh, you know, AWS is a behemoth in itself. I don't think Amazon's going to have any problems. And I also think you're right. They're not a creative company. They're a company that's built on executing in a way that few others can do. So I think they'll be just fine. But enough of that stuff. Let's talk about you and let's talk about Koi Fin. 
because like I said before, I'm a huge fan. It's the first window I open when I get to my office to start thinking about my day. And uh, it's probably one of the last ones I close at the end of the day. So it's kind of how I track the market. I mentioned I'm a macro guy. So I really like to track kind of bigger trends, not necessarily charting a specific stock and looking for technical indicators on a, on a specific trade, but trying to identify um, really larger trends, longer trends, things that are going to um, have an impact. And Coifin, like I said, it's really incredible. Bloomberg Terminal was the, and still is the uh, thing that fills that space. But I think that's largely because there has been, there hasn't been an alternative. And I'm loving Coifin. Um, I get a little better at it uh, every single day and find ways to use it and incorporate it into um, my portfolio management you know, all the time. So tell us a little bit. Uh, well, let's start with this, Rob. You, you mentioned you worked on Wall Street. I think you worked for Goldman and then you worked for a couple hedge funds maybe after, after Goldman. Tell us a little bit about those experiences and what led you to create Coifin. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to take a, another sip, sip of the bourbon before I start. Yeah, yeah, start absolutely. This. Please do. So I, um, I was I, I started Goldman as you, as you mentioned. Um, I had a lot of um, different jobs on Wall Street in terms of working at different companies and also covering different asset classes. So at Goldman, I started in single stocks, but then I moved to a group called Portfolio Strategy, which looked across the market um, and looked at sectors and themes. And then after that, I worked at a macro fund called Caxton, where uh, we were looking at more top-down ideas and, and thinking about ways to express them in the equity market and, um, and, and other cross-assets. Um, and then after that, I worked on an options desk, um, uh, thinking about how to take macro ideas and express them in ETFs and options, and then worked on the uh, on the buy side after that. So in all those roles, one, I got to see how different um, types of investors invest in the market. And then two, I was always kind of the more... Um, analytical, quantitative person uh, in my team who was kind of taking the data, uh, coming up with ideas, analyzing what was going on, um, trying to put together trade ideas either internally for, for the team or externally uh, for clients. Um, and, and for that, I was using all the available kind of tools for, for Wall Street, including Bloomberg and Reuters and FactSet. And so I had a really good idea of what different tools were used for and what was good of certain tools and, and what others lacked. Um, and about four years ago, I was at a hedge fund, uh, five years ago now, I was at a hedge fund. Um, it wasn't doing well. Um, I was focused on a strategy at the hedge fund that was uh, secondary to the core strategy. I was focused more on the options and the macro. Um, and so kind of decided that that the fund is going to start focusing more on its core strategy. So I left to sort of you know do something else. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, I started uh, investing more on my own and, and doing kind of like my own research and doing the process that I used to do. Uh, but I didn't have a Wall Street firm paying for my tools anymore. I had to sort of pay for, for all of it myself. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm sure I could find some resources where I could cobble together some stuff from my broker and on the internet. And all this technology is just getting so advanced. I'm sure somebody came up with something really good that I'm not, that I don't know exists. And kind of the more I looked into it, the more I was like, holy crap, like not only <laughs> is, is everything really expensive, nothing's been modernized in the last 20 years. All these tools still feel like they're from 1987 um, and they look like they're from 1987 and they cost $25,000 a year. So, uh, you know, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> right, right. And, and so um, it was it was something that I started researching, kind of asking questions of like, 
you know, what's the reason that that kind of a, a company didn't come along and uh, innovate on this industry? Um, and so the more I researched it, the more I thought that uh, there was an opportunity and that I was the right person to try and solve this problem. No, that's good stuff. You, you know, you mentioned the 1980s or 84, I think you said. I was, when I was transitioning to starting my own firm, mm-hmm. I was trying to think of how am I going to approach this? I literally wrote on my website that Wall Street and finance in general feels like it's stuck in the 1980s. And I don't know if that's because that was like this heyday for Wall Street and that that was the good old days or what. But you're right. It feels a lot of times very stagnant and stale. And you've got all these cool products like outside, you know, in your everyday life, you're seeing all this cool stuff happening and you're like, damn, I'm still using the same exact things you know, that I've been using. So I, I think you were very wise to uh, see that uh, there was an opportunity there. And I think you've really done an incredible job of putting together a tool that can do so much, but it's so easy to use. And that, that's really the thing. Bloomberg terminals, not, I don't know. I didn't use it back in the day, but it's not easy to use. It's not user-friendly. The UI is terrible. It's got a ton of information. And if you know how to use it, um, you can certainly find what you're looking for. But it is not something that the untrained person can kind of get on and say, hey, it's obvious what I want to look for. I must do this to find it. I think you've done a really nice job of making that so much easier. The simplicity of finding, if I want to take a company and look at how their revenue is growing. It, it's a couple clicks away instead of having to go back to the MS DOS days and remember what I need to type into a command line to look at a company's revenue history or whatever it is. So I think you've done a really nice job at that. And I think um, that makes what you're doing very uh, useful. And uh, I think you'll be compensated well for that. Um, at some point in the future. And that brings me to my next question. Uh, today, CoiFin is free. Started an account. I use it every day. You've added, I think there was a big update. Was that what, a, a, two months ago or? In December, yeah. Okay. So there's a big update. Very, you know, added a, a pretty good chunk of uh, capabilities there. I'm probably not even really scratching the surface of how I could be using it, but um, it's free. So t- tell me a little bit about your roadmap for how you take Coifin from being a free tool to how, how are you going to monetize it? Obviously, um, that's very nice, kind of you, Rob, to uh, give us all this free tool. But uh, I'm sure you're a charitable guy, but probably not that charitable. <laughs> yeah, you know, coming from Ukraine, uh, which was Soviet Russia back then, I, I just believe that everything should be free and, and communal. <laughs> and so that's the, that, that's the business model we have here. Very um, good. I think you're going to be super successful. Yeah, yeah. I think I think my 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 VC investors are not going <laughs> to like hearing that. Uh, surprise, guys. No, the um, you know so so you know I mentioned kind of as I was researching the industry, um, and and you, you sort of uh, hit the nail on the head. And I saw all these other things happening uh, in the world, like you know Drop, Dropbox and Slack, um, and all these all these other cool companies. I was like, wow, like it's web-based and, and the UI is super friendly and it's it has a freemium model. Like all these really great quality products had a free version and you use the free version. You're like, oh, I like this. I want to pay for the paid version. And so my question from like a first principles perspective was, why isn't there a finance product that's a freemium 
that that has a freemium model. And the pushback I received was, look, if you have a free product, people are just going to think it sucks. No one, no one's going to use it. And I was like, okay, uh, but why is that not the case in, in other industries? Why is that not right. the case in HR or or uh, you know engineering or whatever it is? Like, well, finance is different. You just you just it doesn't happen. Um, so pretty early on, we thought like, hey, if we go the freemium route. That's just going to be a huge competitive advantage to to um, us competing with some of the more established players, um, and so that's what we want to do. We wanted to create a, a, an awesome free product, the best free product out there, and then um, uh, have advanced functionality, advanced data, more customization in the paid version. And if you didn't want the advanced product, you just use the free product. Um, but if we solved the problem for you and we sort of helped you with your workflow and made you more efficient and helped you find answers faster. Then we thought that you would pay for the for the advanced version. So that's that's the plan, and and that's something that we've been working pretty hard towards is uh, introducing the the paid plans, which we're going to do uh, at some point this year. Uh, plan Damn for, it! For the second <laughs> quarter, don't worry, James. You'll be able to afford it. It's, it's going to be uh, how, how much how how much is a how much is a it's going to be probably less than. The monthly cost is going to be less than a than a bottle of Blanton's. So I can tell you that. All much. right, fair enough. Fair so, enough. I'll I'll give up one bottle a month. Uh, you could do both. You could do both. <laughs> That's true. Um, so so you know we're right now um, like the the approximate cost we're thinking is is we're going to launch with two tiers. Uh, the first pay tier is going to be around $40 a month, and that's going to include um, a bunch of kind of functionality and customization. And then the more advanced tier is going to be around $100 a month, and that's going to be uh, have a lot more mutual fund stuff and, and ETF stuff and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's not free, but still way less expensive than, than some of the uh, alternative products out there. You're about, what, $1,900 cheaper than some of your competition. <laughs> I'm estimating. I don't know the exact uh, cost there, but... Um, I think that's great. And I think um, you, you've got my business. I will tell you that. No no questions asked. Sweet. Even if I have to bribe you and send you a bottle uh, every, you know, once a month or something like that. I'm, so, I'm happy to barter. Yeah. So, all right. Well, hey, let's, um, I don't know if you've had, I hope you've had enough to drink because I really want some good uh, answers from these next two questions. Let's do it. The first one is, what was your least favorite thing about Wall Street when you were kind of in that world? Whew. Uh, great question. Um, you know, I think um, I think because there's there's so much money involved, uh, I think people you, you really kind of like see the raw side of people, um, and I think you see it more when there's when there's a lot of pressure and and you know people lose money and you sort of get to see kind of like the true uh, the, the true skin of people. Um, and that's the thing that uh, I, I really didn't like is, is seeing some of that uh, light or, or seeing kind of like people in their true light. Um, I would also say that Wall Street, you know, from uh, the 80s to when I started on Wall Street in 2002, that, that was sort of the peak of Wall Street. You had just so many people working on Wall Street. Um, and because Wall Street uh, expanded so quickly, um, and that was kind of a, a – it was a little bit bloated. You, you really had people working on Wall Street that you know weren't like the brightest people. Let's just say that, <laughs> um, and they they got their job either through like a connection or or whatever it is. Um, and so I, I I kind of like I always envisioned when I was in college, I was like, oh my god, like Goldman Sachs is just full of geniuses and Wall Street is just full. Of, Same, and, me too. And, and at the end of the day, like uh, it, I, I bet Wall Street people are 
uh, lower IQ than than if you take like any other kind of uh, uh, white collar industry. Uh, that would be my bet. Well, okay. So follow up question, I guess. <laughs> um, you mentioned two thousand two um, ish being the end of the peak. Do you th- was that because of decentralization because of the internet? Like people didn't need to be on wall street. They could do their jobs from elsewhere or what some other factor. Um, I, I, I think a bunch of factors. So I think just the nineties was the culmination of this like huge, big bull market where, uh, discretionary investing was kind of like at its peak with, with kind of like mutual funds. Um, and I think, uh, with trading and I think after that, uh, you had a lot more regulation. So you had Elliot Spitzer uh, kind of introduce a lot more regulation in the banking industry. Um, you had uh, a, a big shift uh, towards electronic trading and that reduced margins. Um, you had a, a big shift uh, to ETFs, which obviously is still taking place. Um, and so that reduced uh, kind of the flows. Um, you had a lot more uh, quantitative trading. And I think you, you basically kind of like arbed out any um, like any um, uh, fat alpha that you could have before where right. like before there were just like maybe a handful of hedge funds that were uh, really looking at stocks or, or really going deep and really figuring out kind of like the, the interesting trends. Whereas after the big bull market, you just had thousands and thousands of firms that are trying to uh, generate alpha and, and by definition, they're going to arbitrage. <laughs> right. So, um, so I think kind of like all those things, I think kind of like the nineties were, were really like the heyday of wall street and, when I started in 2002, that was probably like on the, uh, on the decline. Okay. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I asked you that question. So on the, on the other side, what was your favorite part about working on wall street? Uh, so the flip side is I, I got to meet so many interesting people. Uh, and so kind of like, uh, there's a huge distribution and, uh, I, you know, uh, a lot of the interesting and, and smart people I met were some of the smartest people that I've ever met. Uh, and really down to earth, um, and kind of like the people that I learned from the most, kind of like the the good managers that I had, uh, really taught me kind of how to, uh, you know, how to look at stocks, how to look at technical analysis, how to keep your cool, how to just quantify stuff, uh, how to think about risk. And so I really appreciate kind of like like with anything, the the good people are what make uh, what make life fun, you know, makes life fun. And and so I'm glad that I got an opportunity to work with so many smart, interesting people. Yeah. And I will say this, I think, um, wall street gets a bad rap a lot of times because the news stories tend to be on the negative, but I think this capitalist environment that we live in, and we can argue how capitalist it is, um, all day and night, but it provides opportunities for an awful lot of people and it's not perfect. Um, but wall street's an institution that, um, helps facilitate that. And there are a lot of good people, doing a lot of good work and making money too. And making money uh, to me doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Uh, in fact, it means you're, you're probably doing something right in a lot of cases. So that's really uh, interesting to hear. And I want to ask, you do a video series that kind of brings guests on who uh, talk about their investment strategies. So could be anything. I mean, there are a million, I mean, there are infinite ways to go about this, right? Mm-hmm. So you bring these guests on. I've really enjoyed that. Everybody's different. I've got my method. You've got yours. Um, you know, every advisor, every institutional investor, everybody has, you know, what they think works. How does Rob Koifman invest? Like what do you, what's your kind of broad strategy? Yeah. So, um, I basically have a combination of, I look at, uh, the macro trends. So I try to kind of think about kind of like, what are the big macro, uh, thematic trends that are happening? Uh, 
I then think about kind of how that impacts fundamentals. Uh, and then I think about technical analysis. And so I kind of marry the three together. Um, and that's how, how I think about investing. Um, sometimes my, my, uh, investing is, is very short term. It's very tactical. Other times it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, longer term, but it's, it's sort of a kind of what, what works for me. And, and that's what I use. Yeah. So that, you know, I'm very similar. Um, I, I don't do too much short term stuff as a whole, but I will say, and I don't use too much technical analysis in a short window. I will use technical analysis specifically on the exit side. I don't tend to use it as much on the entry when I feel good about a macro trend and I feel good about a company that I feel like can capture the benefits of a trend. I tend to feel like let's go ahead and get in, you know, but I do use technical analysis maybe to figure out maybe this trend is uh, running its course or, or, you know, whatever. So when you say tactical, what do you mean? Are you talking weeks, months? Uh, it, it's, it's typically days or weeks. Uh, it's, it's something that I don't have like a very strong fundamental view on, but maybe technically something's, uh, setting up that that's kind of interesting to me. So I'll give you an example is, um, uh, I had Puru Saxana on my, on my, uh, YouTube series a couple of yeah, weeks ago. I saw that one. Very good. And, and so he, you know, he, uh, talked to me about a stock uh, called Fubo, which, which is basically uh, a skinny bundle play. Um, it's, it's one of these, uh, kind of uh, companies that takes a bunch of content and tries to sell it through the internet. And it's interesting to me because it's a hugely controversial name in that they have a slightly different take on it and that they're doing more sports and they're trying to integrate into gambling. Uh, but then there's also a lot of skeptics on it. And as we talked heavily about, shorted. Have we yeah. shorted about 60% shortage. Um, and I look at the chart and the char- chart looks really bullish. And so for me, uh, there's a lot of scope for, for the shorts to cover, for the stock to go higher. And so tactically, I'm, I'm long the stock. Now, do I have a view on whether uh, the sports thing or the betting thing is going to work out? I, d- I don't have a view. Um, and I actually think a lot of smart investors have a negative view of the stock. But the, uh, the way that kind of the setup works with the high short interest and the, the stock setting up in kind of like a very bullish pattern um, makes me sort of interested and, and makes me take a, a shorter term view. And I, I just wanted to mention, James, that, you know, we talk about technical analysis. Technical analysis could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Absolutely. You know, some, pe- some people use moving averages. Um, it sounds like you use it to to think about stops and maybe it's like a trailing moving average or maybe it's some levels that you're watching. Um, I love using technical analysis to think about breakouts and ranges and trends. And th- that's sort of how, how how I use it. And, and so an example right now is like, um, you know, I pay. I'm paying closer attention to emerging markets than I would have otherwise, because there's there's something about that chart being in such a long range uh, for for about ten years and now breaking out of that range. And so to me, that's something that that's the market saying something new and something different is happening here. You know, coupled with the fact that the dollar is now reversing, declining. So that's just something that's like a, a box, uh, an arrow in the quiver to kind of say something's going on here that I should pay closer attention to than if it wasn't happening. Um, so that's, that's, that's sort of the, on the, um, on the, on the tactical short-term side. Uh, that was a, that was sort of one example right now. That, no, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, Fubo's up about 15%, I think in the last week. So you've done, you've done well in the last week anyways. And I, I think you're right. I mean, technical analysis is often associated with day trading, but it's not, a, it's not a day trading invention. I mean, technical analysis, if you see a, a, a company or a sector that's been basing for 
10 years and breaks out, mm-hmm. that's, that's really good. I mean, that, yep. that potentially, um, if, if, if you're into that, um, sort of analysis. So I think that's a, a valid point that technical analysis does not mean you're day trading. It doesn't even mean you're swing trading. Um, sometimes the longer something, uh, kind of idles, the bigger the breakout may be. So, um, I think that's a really good point. I'd like to come back to one thing you mentioned earlier, because I think it's probably, I'm a story guy. I love stories. I'm a sucker for a good story. My last guest, it was a really cool show because he shared his story of going into the lowest point of his life of being incarcerated to becoming an entrepreneur and an investor and things like that. You've got a story you mentioned earlier, being born in the Ukraine and immigrating to the United States. I just think that'd be cool to share um, with everybody. Just give us a, a quick uh, couple minutes on on your your history. Yeah, so uh, you know, I was born in Ukraine uh, in a city called Chernovtsi. Um, I, you know, I didn't I didn't leave uh, Ukraine. Uh, I, I was six years old. Basically, my family emigrated. Um, so uh, we're we're Russian Jews. Um, we left Ukraine in 1987, and that was part of a whole big movement of Jews leaving uh, Russia and the Soviet Union and emigrating to the U.S. and Israel. So. I was part of that wave, um, and so we moved to uh, we moved to Brooklyn um, in, in Bensonhurst. Uh, I was seven years old. Um, it was a huge change for me because kind of the the life in the U.S. was, was just so different than life in, in Ukraine. Um, I remember we moved here uh, around December and seeing Christmas lights it was just like holy crap! This is the best country in the world. They like light up their house. <laughs> Uh, so for a seven-year-old kid, that was great. And, and so we lived, uh, it was the four of us, we were living in like a studio apartment. And, uh, you know, uh, luckily I had a really supportive family and my parents worked really hard and were you know provided for, for our family. And I was able to go to college. And, and so they set that base for me. So I'm really grateful to them. But, uh, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, I've had a, I've had a wild ride. And um, interestingly enough, my, uh, a big part of our development team is now in Ukraine in Kiev. And so I get to go there, um, a couple of times a year. Uh, so it's nice to, to, to be back there and they always get surprised or new developers get surprised when I start speaking Russian to them and they're like, Holy crap. How's this, <laughs> how's this American speak Russian? So, uh, it's a lot well, of fun. That's really cool. And I think there, a lot of times I, I feel this paradigm or, or I feel like there's this uh, belief with a lot of people that the American dream is either dead or dying. But then on the other hand, I hear too many stories like that. I mean, that was not long ago. And I hear, you know, my guest from last week, Dale Robinson, his story. Um, it's just not there. There's so much opportunity here. Uh, Warren Buffett calls it the American tailwind. And I think it's alive and well. And I think that's a really cool story. Um, you're obviously a successful guy. And, um, you know, I think what you're doing with with your company is amazing. And I think that's amazing that you were able to kind of uh, experience two different sides of the world, even if you may have been uh, quite a young lad back in those days. So very cool. And thank you for, uh, for sharing that. Got a couple questions before we wrap things up that I'd like to ask you. Sure. What does wealth mean to you? Um, I think, I think wealth uh, means, uh, so, so one, uh, obviously wealth is very subjective. Um, and I think at a certain level, wealth is just comfort. Uh, it's it's being comfortable um, and having um, the ability to just do what interests you. That that could be um, because there's because financially you're well off, but that also could be because you have a, a really good family and you have the support around you. Um, so 
I think um, you know I think wealth is is sort of um, is that safety net safety net has to do with with expectations um, and that freedom to to pursue and to do what you want. Yeah, I agree. The the two words I usually think of as freedom, which you just mentioned there at the end, and then the other one you touched on it as well is it's to me it's security. It's being able to sleep at night knowing that uh, we're going to be okay tomorrow. <laughs> so I, I, I you know I think for a lot of people that's the case. I think wealth oftentimes gets tied too directly to money when really it it it's a, a it's wrapping up so many things. It's it's it is money. But it's also, like you mentioned, family. It's also friends. It's also just how comfortable are you in your day-to-day life with who you're interacting with? And are you able to enjoy a day, even if it's just a regular day? Um, because that, that stuff's important. Absolutely. And then one more question, and then I'll uh, let you uh, finish off that bourbon and, and get back to your day. It's you know it's just now a uh, little after 4 o'clock Eastern. So we, we did an early happy hour today. <laughs> So thanks for, uh, thanks for, uh, joining me before the markets closed. But anyways, what would 22 year old Rob or what, what would Rob today tell 22 year old Rob when you're looking back and, uh, just about life, money, um, investing your pick your poison there. Oh man, such a, <laughs> such an open-ended question. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, um, I think it's really important, um, I think kind of the geography you're in is, is, is very much uh, kind of impacts you and impacts the opportunities you have and the people you meet. And so for, for me, um, if I had to give myself advice, I would uh, suggest to move somewhere else outside of New York, you know, California, uh, LA, uh, maybe San Francisco for a little, uh, another country for a little bit. Um, because I, I think that just kind of like opens up your horizon. Uh, in New York, I was, uh, a lot of people are pigeonholed into Wall Street because that's really the like one of the the main career paths. And I think I think other geographies just um, one they're much more pleasant, much more warm. Uh, the people are, are different, come from from different walks of life. Um, so that's that's sort of like one thing that I, I wish I would have done. Um, maybe not too late. No, definitely not too late. You're a young guy. Um, I'm, I, it made me think of that. Uh... Mark Twain quote where uh, he said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of mm-hmm. our people need it sorely on these accounts. I think that's such a good quote because it is true. I mean, you if you're not meeting people who are different from you, then you end up living in a, a, a very, very narrow world. And you're not getting the uh, the whole story or, or not even really hardly any of it. Um, so I just think that's that's really insightful. I love traveling. I think everyone... You, you know, whether if you can't afford to leave the country regularly and go visit other countries, leave your town, leave your city, uh, go to another part of the state that you live in. Um, if you can, if you can do more than that, then go to another part of the country because there are a lot of cool people out there, have a lot of uh, different backgrounds and you will learn something when you're traveling. One of my favorite things is to go into a bar um, and I got to travel internationally quite a bit. So, you know, seeing sites and the, you know, seeing the architecture, that's, that's fine. That's really cool. I've seen pictures of it. Looks like the picture. <laughs> um, but what's really cool to me is going and meeting people and sitting in a bar or a restaurant and striking up a conversation with somebody and learning a little bit about their culture, who they are, what their struggles are, you know, those sort of things. So I think uh, that's spot on. And I'm sure you'll do plenty of uh, traveling in uh, your coming days. So 
Good stuff. Any more words about the bourbon? How's it uh, still going down smoothly over there? It's 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 really smoothly. I actually uh, I'm gonna you sent me you were kind enough to send me two bottles, which was uh, awesome. Uh, I gotta say, I guess people on this um, on the podcast can't see the bottles are are beautifully designed. Um, I actually want to try it on the rocks because I love um, I kind of like a, a little um, I, I drink my my mezcal and tequila on the rocks. So um, I hope you don't mind. I'm gonna try the second bottle on the rocks. No, do it. I will say this too. Here's a little tidbit that I learned um, just in the business. When you when you pour your next glass on the rocks, when you go to, to, to kind of check the nose and see how it smells and pick up some of those um, notes that you might not necessarily taste, open your mouth when you when you do that sniff. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I, don't, I can't explain it. Um, I'm certainly uh, not uh, an expert on the anatomy of the nose uh, <laughs> or, or anything, but when you open your mouth and you give that and, and you do that sniff of that bourbon, for some reason, that's going to open up your your uh, nasal passages, I guess, to so many more uh, robust and complex scents than you would get if you just closed your mouth. Mm. Really weird, really simple, but for some reason it works. So give that a shot. I think you'll pick up some things that uh, some and that'll work for tequila or uh, whatever else you're drinking. So, okay. James's uh, bourbon t- sniffing uh, right. tip of the day. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like I'm going to look very silly, but uh, as long as it, it cre- creates a better sensation, that's all good. It will. And that's the goal. So, well, sir, I appreciate it, Rob. I love what you're doing. Um, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, and I certainly learned some things that I know uh, the listeners will. So thank you for uh, for doing that. Thank you so much. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I had a great time and looking forward to doing it again sometime. Absolutely. All right. Take care, sir. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rob Koifman. I hope you grabbed a, a bourbon of your own and sipped on that a little bit. I know no matter how many times I have Blanton's, it's always a treat every single time. So that was fantastic. And I hope you learned something. Don't forget, please hit that subscribe button if you've liked what we're doing so far. And we're always open to feedback, so you can reach out to us at bullsbearsandbourbon.com. And we hope to hear from you, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.